Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The history of sports goes back thousands of years. Some of the earliest documented involved preparing for battle. So it's no surprise that spear throwing and sparring one-on-one were popular games. Fast forward to now, and a lot of sports have become worldwide phenomena. Even multi-billion dollar businesses, athletes at the top of their game are mega famous and wealthy. Generations of young people devote themselves to someday becoming one of the lucky few to captivate millions of fans. But today, you're going to meet some athletes who are not that well known, and neither is their beloved sport. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and today you're going to hear about the exhilaration and unexpected satisfaction of extreme ironing. And you'll wince more than once when you hear about the oh-so-British sport of shin-kicking. But let's get started with arguably the most well-known of these underdog sports people, Florence Early. She is a four-time women's champion of cheese rolling from Stroud, England. Cheese rolling is a 600-year-old tradition, and you may have seen Florence in the beautifully made Netflix documentary series, We Are the Champions. I mean, when you think about it, why buy cheese at the supermarket when you can just chase a nine-pound wheel of double Gloucester cheese that's barreling down a steep hill at nearly 70 miles per hour alongside dozens of competitors? Florence Early will tell you exactly why she did it and how she won it more times than any other woman in recorded cheese rolling history. Let's get started with the history behind this event, which has taken place on Cooper's Hill in Gloucester, England, since at least the early 1800s. Apparently, well, supposedly the Coopers, they were a barrel maker family, and they used to supposedly roll these their barrels down the hill to show the integrity and the quality of their barrels. And somehow that evolved to cheese. And I don't entirely understand or know it other than that it was this local thing that feels to me as though it's blown way out of proportion. But <laughs> um, but this hill is lethal. It is essentially a cliff that enough people jump off that makes it somehow feel all right to do but it's really reckless it's not a good idea not something to do it's a terrible idea terrible idea <laughs> <laughs> but it's been going on for a long time and so so uh folks gather at the top of this extremely steep hill yeah somebody launches a cheese wheel will you tell me about the cheese wheel it's huge it's a good big it's the size of a torso yeah it's like it's a proper cheese mongers cheese <laughs> <laughs> and it's heavy. You don't want to get knocked by, you don't want to get hit by that cheese. And people have done in the past. There was a, a few years ago, or about 10 years ago, there was a camera person who had their camera completely smashed into their face when the cheese hit the end of their camera. 
there's a reason that they let the cheese go down the hill a solid second before anyone else goes because it is fast and it is hard and it's solid and at the very bottom they've got a row of hay bales to stop the cheese <laughs> it's not so much the people and they've also got a row of rugby players well the rugby players have to run away from the cheese and then run back in to catch the people it's a sort of hay bale for the cheese <laughs> rugby player to tackle you <laughs> if you're lucky <laughs> uh so the objective is that somebody launches this cheese wheel and as soon as it's launched all the people, and it's separated between men and women currently, That's it. run after it and typically topple and yeah. bend. Exactly. Just get down that hill as fast as you can. <laughs> right. And the first person to reach that line at the bottom wins. Exactly. And wins the cheese, right? That is what you win. The cheese and the glory. <laughs> and that is it. <laughs> Will you bring me back to your first role this was in 2008 you were 17 yes um I think so my siblings and I were all born in the same week and usually that meant that just before the cheese rolling we threw a massive party at our parents family home and so the night before we would have probably been at this party had a bunch of friends coming with us to the cheese roll which is just quite a fun after party with people who haven't slept yet and and are quite hungover or ragged or still going or whatever but <laughs> something quite fun to go and do with a morning and and to take your friends along to James is just like that he probably I mean I think that was the first time he ran and I definitely felt like if he did it then it was probably all right to do that, that was sort of my thinking with most things. If he, if he can do it, I can definitely do it. <laughs> and he came second in the race that he did. And so I just last minute jumped over the fence and joined the girls' race. They'd already been lined up for a little bit. There's about a five to ten minute wait between races where they've already got the people up on the hill, which is actually the worst time of the whole race to just be sat there waiting for them to to let you go <laughs> but they were all waiting and I couldn't resist so I was at the edge and I just jumped on and then won nobody know you never know you've won till someone tells you <laughs> you don't really know what's going on on the way down but I won that race and then within that same friendship group that tended to always come back for the next birthday parties we we've all grown up we, I was born in the same house that my parents still live in. And so we have a lot of friends that we've known all of our lives. And they tend to gather for all the significant parties, which have always been just before one of these races <laughs> where I can't resist. James can't resist. Everyone else can't resist having a go. And it's just, I feel like it's just been lucky. But then after the fourth time having a go and winning, you start thinking, oh, maybe, maybe there is something to it. <laughs> just that I'm not so aware of it. Which was the one where you broke your collarbone? Uh, the second to last one. 2018. That should have been my last time. And that did shake me up. First time I was fine. Second time, even my hair looked fine. Like everything was in place. I was just like, well, this is, this is easy. Third time was a huge awakening. It was the first time I'd got injured in my life. You competed four times. Each time you won, right? Yeah. 
What is the difference in strategy from your first last minute domination to the last one you did in 2019? There wasn't, this wasn't a strategy thing, but when I got really badly hurt, I hadn't been drinking. I'd <laughs> so for the next race, I was like, well, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And I made sure I had a few drinks beforehand. I sort of, what did you drink? I had some tiny trinkets that came from, they were like wedding flavors at other people's wedding, you know, like, oh, like nips, we call them nips. Yeah. The sort of things that end up in your cupboard if you haven't actually used them. And I was just like, oh, I'll just stick those in my pocket. And it, cause it's more we talking like gin, whiskey, yeah, exactly. rum. They were some sort of cocktail that day. I don't think I'd been, I hadn't been up all night from a party that time. So I was a bit nervous about that because it always worked out for the best when I had been. Um, my strategy is definitely getting worse, whatever it is, because I'm getting more injured the more I do it. The last race, I broke my leg, although I didn't really, I didn't notice at all. I mean, I went to the pub afterwards and stayed there until quite late in the evening. <laughs> Someone sent me to the hospital. They're like, Florence, that's not normal. <laughs> well, I wonder when you, in any, and this is for any of the times you've done this. Yeah. I want to hear about the moment before the cheese is released those i imagine stressful it's horrible intense moments what is going through your mind your body t bring me back to those those moments it's like you feel sick you feel <laughs> people always talk about how fearless you must be blah 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 and actually that's complete bollocks you're yeah it's like proper heart in your throat racing you kind of go over a couple of times. Go, you just want it to get started at that point because you know it's 10-second, maybe 15-second race tops if you're doing it right. So you just want to get started. And the eight minutes or so or whatever it is that you're sitting there looking down this hill, there's nothing to do but sit in fear. you know, And you just want that to get over with. And you're fine once you're at the other end of it, even if you've been hurt. It's the fear of breaking your neck or your back and knowing that if you're going to do it in the way that you need to do it to go for it for the win you're going to probably get hurt especially if it's been dry weather and the ground is hard so these things are running through your head and certainly after my collarbone it felt like a really stupid thing to do again I decided to never do it again after the collarbone one then I did it again and that was the real kind of like that's it. I'm not doing it again. And I tried to make that as I was quite vocal about that more just to stop anyone asking me to do it because so many that was I'm easily led. <laughs> easily swayed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I started setting some boundaries with myself. Nice. Well. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's where it starts. So for people who will be doing this in the future, maybe they've never done it before. Um, and they've always been spectators, and this is their year. What are some good pieces of advice you can give them? Maybe what not to do is the advice, or what to do? Lean back is a good idea. It's hard to say because it goes so fast, but I, I've noticed that what I do, I think, differently to other people in the race is I jump out. Other people tend to kind of resist they try and start slow yeah and I've noticed other people are kind of trying to run down the beginning but my jumping out almost always starts me off on a much faster foot so starting off with a big leap forward 
is a huge yeah. difference in terms of so I'm usually holding on to the grass until until they I hear the the go moment and when I let go it's just like I'm out out of there and I'm running like I'm sprinting a race you know I'm not running as though I'm on the edge of a cliff <laughs> yeah, like as if in my mind at least when I'm starting that's the kind of energy I'll put into that first jump and then the rest of it for me is simply trying to stay upright or as much as I can try to keep going obviously you're falling and tumbling and turning and you're just seeing ground in the sky <laughs> quite a lot but as much as I can I'll just try and keep the momentum going off that beginning that first one everyone else I mean everyone who starts off slow will still gather momentum but then it's too late you know it's sort of like if they if they really want to win it I really recommend not going sober I think being as relaxed as you can going into it is really helpful because you will tumble probably but tumbling's okay <laughs> as long as you can bounce back up I think it's when you brace yourself that you break well, you know what? It's like a metaphor for anything in your life that's difficult. When you resist the pain, when you resist yes. the feeling, it makes it worse. And if you just allow yeah. and let it flow, then yeah, you're still going to get hurt, but it won't be as bad. Go with the flow, man. <laughs> flow down the river or the hill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you win, they hand you that big block of cheese yeah and you hold it up and everyone takes pictures well they kind of they scrape you off the floor <laughs> first of all <laughs> and then they sort of throw you in front of a wall of cameras and you're there kind of like uh, uh. and uh, certainly one of the years definitely the year I had my collarbone I'm pretty sure I was pretty badly concussed and I had about three second warning like you know they scoop you off the floor also to get you out of the way of other runners coming down the hill. So it's a pretty fast thing. And then the moment you're looking up, you've got a cheese in your hand and a bunch of cameras staring at you. <laughs> and you're filled with adrenaline. You're in a bit pretty bizarre situation that you're not prepared for. I mean, prepared in terms of being asked questions for a camera. <laughs> what are some of the worst injuries you've seen across the board, regardless of gender, in this sport? I think someone broke their back once. I think someone was paralysed doing it. But I, I I, haven't seen an awful lot. I mean, you're kind of in the thick of it when you're there. Every time I've been in an ambulance, though, it's quite a funny scene because they'll, like, the year I broke my collarbone, I was in an ambulance and there were three others in the ambulance with me. <laughs> and then you get to the hospital, everyone is covered in mud. We all look completely bonkers walking into these spaces and you see everyone in the waiting room in the hospital just like what on earth is going on and then more of us keep arriving <laughs> so, and they kind of look the doctors sort of look at their calendars or whatever it is and go oh it's that day of the year again <laughs> I like that y'all got into one ambulance and stuffed yourself into one ambulance because I don't know what healthcare is like over there but that really probably like you could split it three ways when the bill comes so it won't be well, there isn't a bill we have the NHS here so there's we don't pay for healthcare we just get taken care of which is probably why people are so relaxed about doing things like the cheese roll so there are trade-offs I see <laughs> get a slap on the wrist at the hospital along with our cast <laughs> oh by the way speaking of casts i like you 
love casts. I've heard that <laughs> growing, you know, they're, they're, they just look really cool. I remember when I was a kid, maybe twice, I wrapped my wrist in an ace bandage in like elementary school just because I thought it was cool and I wanted attention. Wasn't it the edgiest thing when someone went into school with a cast? You're like, you must be really cool. Something cool must have happened to you. Yeah. And you got your cast. Finally. <laughs> Age 30 or 29. The cheese was a prize, but the real prize was the cast. Woo-hoo! Yeah, and six weeks of awkward working. It's actually really annoying timing. But then people hold the door for you, and that feels nice. That's true, yeah. I'd actually just moved to this house back in Cornwall, and then I, within two weeks of moving here, I broke my leg. Couldn't drive anywhere, didn't know anyone to kind of help me out. <laughs> I was sort of bum shuffling to get to the supermarket. Yeah, it definitely wasn't wasn't as fun as it looked as a child. <laughs> um, I think I see that you have a tattoo on your arm. Do you have any tattoos to commemorate uh, this event? No, I don't. I did think about I won a tattoo recently in a tombola. Well, it's not that recently, like over a year ago. <laughs> and I thought maybe I should get a little cheese somewhere which I haven't, and now the, the date on it has, has passed. All my tattoos have come from being a student and pretty drunk. <laughs> but I would like to get a little cheese somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about cheese in general? I love it. I love cheese. Although, although I never managed to, except for the first one, I never managed to finish any of the following cheeses, which cheese. definitely feels... Like a great shame. If you're so lucky to get old and gray and you look back on your life and you see that you participated in this tradition in the place that you grew up and you did so well. <laughs> when you are that old person gazing upon this past, how does it feel? I think it feels quite nice. I hope my grandkids if I'm really old and gray will think that's really cool would you hope they'd do it yeah I reckon they would I wouldn't be encouraging them but I can't imagine they wouldn't if they're around those parts and also if your own granny did it it feels like I would probably do it all over again if I knew my granny (laughs) so I, I mean I hope it gives me some cool points granny cool points someday right now I get a bit kind of funny being on any kind of pedestal because it just doesn't I don't know where to place myself I don't I don't put myself there and then sometimes I get put on it and I don't know what to do with that but it's I'm glad I've been involved I'm glad I won but if you ever get the chance come along and and see if you fancy a race I will I will Florence Early thank you so much for talking with me Thank you. You're you're great. <laughs> I've really enjoyed chatting to you. <laughs> Lots of love. Bye-bye. And if you ever take Florence up on her offer and want to try it out for yourself, please roll and drink responsibly. When we get back, when you've made the painful decision to compete in a shin-kicking event, are you allowed any kind of protection at all? You can still wear leather boots, but you're allowed to stick straw up your trouser legs. That gives you a little bit of... A little bit of protection from the kicks. Plus a hot take on the world of extreme ironing. Everyone I've ever seen out on the hill, they've just been filled with joy at the kind of ridiculousness of the situation. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about weird freaking sports. I mean, any sport is weird if you think about it for long enough. Throw a ball. Kick a ball, hit a ball, whack a puck, lots of nets, cheer or boo, points, 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 winner, loser, maybe draw. Weird. But the sports you're hearing about today are really weird. Like extreme ironing or shin kicking. That's right. Shin kicking. There's not much more to explain than that, but here's a little context to wrap our tibias around the premise. More than 400 years ago, English attorney, author, and clearly a very big thinker, Robert Dover, created the Cotswold Olympic Games. Alongside contests like tug of war and sledgehammer throwing was shin kicking. Pete Buzzsaw Holland is a shin-kicking referee, also called a stickler. They call them sticklers because they have Gandolfian staffs that separate the athletes until the moment just before they start kicking the living shin lights out of each other. So, okay, how exactly does this all work? You take a hold on your opponent's shirt, get a good grip on the shoulders, and then in order to throw your opponent... It must be seen that you've kicked a leg out by kicking it below the knee, and then you can throw them onto the floor. So you can't just throw them. It has to be as a result of having kicked them in the shin. If you turned into them as a traditional hip throw, yeah, that wouldn't count. You'd need to kick the leg out by hitting the shins. You Basically, you're kicking at the shins to get them off balance, and then you're throwing them to the floor. And then the sticklers, if it's a clean throw, they'll announce it and give you a point and... On goes the match until we get the winner. And how do you win? Once you got your opponent down with three clean throws, you win. Since we're talking about kicking, what kind of footwear are competitors allowed to wear? Traditionally, the players, or the old gamesters as they were known, would wear hobnail boots. Hobnail? So, obviously, people would wear leather boots. And in order to make sure that the soles lasted longer you would put iron nails into the bottom of the boots which were called hobnails that's why they're called hobnail boots because when the nails start to wear down you can take those nails out and then put new ones in and it stops the sole your leather sole of your boot from wearing so you'd have your hobnail boots on and a lot of them would 
they have their ones they'd use for the shin kicking where they'd boil the boots to harden the leather. And there are records of saying people would also use hammers to hit their shins in preparation to basically harden the skin up. So the skin would scar and become thicker on the shins. People can't see this, but I am currently backing away from the computer <laughs> because this is very painful to listen to. And maybe that'll help me feel better. I don't know. Now, in the modern shin kicking, they've got a little bit more easier on the shin kickers. You can still wear leather boots, but you're allowed to stick straw up your trouser legs. Straw, not hay. Uh, well, actually, hay would probably be the better better choice. Yeah, I say straw, I mean hay. Um, so you tape up above the knee, and then you literally stuff your trouser legs full of hay, and then tape it up round the round the ankle of the boot, and that gives you a little bit of a little bit of protection from the kicks. But you still feel it if you get a good direct kick on your shin. I feel like there's this absurdity to the sport of shin kicking. Do you feel that too, as part of the sport, both as a competitor and as a stickler? When you're out there and you have prepared yourself for the shin kicking, everything in your head goes quiet. You, you don't even notice that there are 2,000 plus people standing there cheering and shouting because you are just focused solely on your opponent. And the same goes for the sticklers because when I'm stickling, you don't hear the crowd. You're just in your own world. At that point, the sticklers and the combatants are just focused. And, and although from the outside it might seem a little bit whimsical, a little bit weird, no, when you're focused in that zone, it's real. That's <laughs> It's a real thing. It's combat, and that's that's all you're focusing on is to beat that opponent. So there's no absurdity in the ring? Not in the ring. It might seem to the general public, you know. I mean, again, the term shin-kicking kind of sounds a bit funny, doesn't it? And, of course, we're in, in England, we are renowned for other things such as, you know, cheese rolling and bog snorkeling. and <laughs> You know, we do a lot. And I know that uh, shin-kicking generally comes in under the uh, – title if you like of wacky sports apt really wacky because we whack each other um, but, <laughs> nice nice yeah but i think that's more just the public perception of the way that it's kind of put over by the media because it is a traditional wrestling style you know you have back wrestling which is the back hole wrestling up in uh, lancashire lancashire and scotland and places like that and as i say down in cornwall you have the cornish wrestling association that uh, runs all the official cornish wrestling tournaments so it's a, a real sport but it just sounds it sounds when you say shin kicking it kind of sounds a bit mental but yes you are putting yourself if you put if you put yourself in the ring there you are expecting to get kicked <laughs> painfully i mean but you, then your job as the as one of the opponents yeah when you're fighting as one of the old gamesters uh, and they're taking a swing at you it's just as important that you slip their kicks so you know you if you put your force behind putting a kick in at my leg and I slip it, there's more likely that you overswing and you're going to put yourself off balance, allowing for a counter kick, and you're going to be on your back before you know it. So it's combat. Tactical gameplay is in there. And it's also, you know, it's not just the legs. It's not just standing there and literally leathering each other with kicks because you are moving around, you're turning, you're trying to turn your opponent. In the instance that you turn them and get them off balance, you can get in underneath there, get a kick in, throw them over. There's, there's uh, you know, but it's not for the faint-hearted. Let's put it that way. You seem like a really nice person, uh, and you also seem like you've also been through a lot, and that you can take criticism. 
And so when you make a call and perhaps one of the shin kickers is not pleased with your call and disagrees enthusiastically, how have you ever had your feelings hurt? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> when you stickle, you've just got to stay focused. You know the rules. And I've had people that have argued, and I'll just give them a timeout. Go sit down, take a breather, back in the ring, let's do this. But the stickler, yeah, I am a stickler for the rules, as they say. Any referee has got to have a thick skin, I think. And you do it. And you do have a secondary stickler in the ring that you can bounce off of. And that's it. When you've made a decision, it stays. Because this sport has such an old history where you are, I wonder if you think that shin kicking could be made bigger elsewhere. Like, do you think shin kicking could come to Hartford and have a future? Or do you think it truly is buried in the place it came from? I'd love to see it. I mean, as I say, the world championships are held once a year at the Cotswold Olympic Games. But there is no reason why people can't take that sport and take it to other countries and play it themselves and have their own uh, shin-kicking tournaments. I mean, you know, the, the heart of shin-kicking is still the Cotswolds. That's where it lies now. That's its, its home. So I'd like to see that if anybody was shin-kicking and they were taking shin-kicking to Australia or shin-kicking to North America or Canada or wherever they wanted to, that uh, they would still want to come to the Cotswold Olympic Games in order to compete for the glory of being announced the world champion on that hallowed ground which it's always been played at see then i think if shin kicking is played and practiced in other parts of the world that could be an opportunity for you to begin to train the next generation of sticklers is that something you'd be excited about well i'd love to we do have stickling training courses because I, I, you can't just throw somebody into a ring in any of the sports that i've mentioned and just say go and get on with it you, you know, you have to train as a stickler. There's so much involved, like being any referee. You've got health and safety. You've got to know all your rules back to front so that if you do get somebody who's going to uh, contest a call or anything like that, you can deal with it, that you know exactly what you're doing and why you're in there and what your job is. And that takes training. And so we normally, we get people in there, we put them through a basic training program and then allow them to start having some hands-on practice within classes when people are training for doing events that's where they start getting their experience because there isn't anything worse and i have seen this when you get sticklers in the ring and they make calls which are incorrect and you're by the side you go oh that's a bad call that's a bad call and i'm not surprised that the combatants are complaining about that or somebody's taken offense to it or the public are going boo you know what's going so you, you've got a lot of weight on your shoulders as a stickler and you need to make sure those calls are right. But you're only going to get there through practice and you're only going to get that practice if you get actually into the ring with actual fighters to do that eventually. And so yes, you do have to have training at it and you have to know the rules of the sport that you're stickling for. Pete Holland, thank you so much for all that you do. You can call me Buzz, you know, that's where everybody knows me as Buzz. Since we're friends now, I'll let you give me Buzz. Well, Buzz Holland, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for your chat. After the break, does anybody know where we can do some good old-fashioned extreme ironing? About seven, seven or eight of us hiked up this mountain in the snow, took an ironing board with us, got dressed up in nice suits, and um, 
warmed up the iron on some local volcanic rocks, which were even quite warm, so that was perfect. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When most of us iron our clothes, we're in our bedroom, maybe bathroom. But have you ever considered ironing your favorite button down on top of a volcano? Or perhaps I can interest you in pressing your pants while downhill skiing? Back in September of 2002, the first and only recorded Extreme Ironing World Championships took place in the picturesque village of Falai, Bavaria, not too far from Munich. Ten different nations were represented at this noble competition. The brave ironers were judged on a combination of creative ironing skills and crease quality. They lived up to their name and competed in the most extreme of environments— in the middle of a rushing river, on top of mountains, and even hanging upside down from a tree. Fantastic! The winner of the Extreme Ironing World Championships walked away with a Hawaiian vacation, a washing machine, and other unspecified household goods. Since that mighty display of pressing prowess, the sport has really heated up. Just ask Matthew Batley. He's been ironing extremely on top of active volcanoes, lakes, and caves on mountains in New Zealand, and, well, anywhere else his ironing board will take him. I asked him when his love for extreme ironing really began. So I, I personally discovered extreme ironing about um, oh, about six or so years ago when friends of us from the Auckland University Tramping Club were trying to decide the strangest thing to take up a mountain. One of my friends actually found, just rediscovered this sport of extreme ironing, um, which really had its heyday in, in, in the 90s and originally was birthed um, here in the UK, where I, I'm based at the moment. And it just it just really, really tickled us. We thought, eh, this is yeah, this is a great idea. That's something completely ridiculous we can take off a mountain. And so um yeah, about about seven, seven or eight of us hiked up this mountain in the snow, took an ironing board with us, got dressed up in nice suits and um warmed up the iron on some local volcanic rocks, which were even quite warm. So that was perfect. Yeah, that was gonna be one of my next questions about you know, operationally, there's no place to plug in, but tell me about the volcano. So, yeah, you say, obviously, you don't want to be dragging a generator everywhere you go. And, and so there are, there are some more clever ways of warming up your iron. Um, you could simply warm it on a fire. With, in, in, in the club, we've got the iron iron, which is a solid cast iron iron, which is absolutely perfect. Any, anything you can heat up, you can warm that on. Likewise, if, if you happen to find a, a volcanic vent in, in North Island of New Zealand, for example, where we were doing this, there's quite a few dormant volcanoes, which do have a nice fumes coming off them, still a bit of heat around. And so it's perfect. You can um, you can just put it straight on there and you don't have to worry at all about a power source. Well, let's talk about the board. Uh, when I think about an ironing board, I think an ironing board is an ironing board is an ironing board. Is there 
one kind of ironing board that rises above them all? Oh, good question. I, I have, I must confess, um, tested, approved, and broken quite a few ironing boards in my time. Um, they are an awkward thing to carry. Uh, and so going as light as possible is, is important. But the, there are some rules to extreme ironing. And so you need to make sure it is a, a true ironing board. You can't get a fake one that's half the size. And um, so... You don't. I, I have no particular brand to recommend. You can you can choose whatever you like, but as long as it's it's a full size proper ironing board that you can somehow take up a mountain or somewhere with you. All right. So let's talk about some rules. What do I need to know about the very strict rules of extreme ironing? The first rule is it has to be outside. So if if you see pictures of people extreme ironing inside, I'm I'm afraid that's that's not extreme ironing. Um, the second rule is yes, it has to be a real iron and a real ironing board, something that you could use in in your room here. And and it's still got to work out on the hill, and you know, and they've developed this idea of of basically dressing up in a, a nice suit or a dress or something when you when when you're doing it. So you have to look your best when you're ironing your clothes, as if you're going to put it straight back on afterwards and and go to a nice party. And so, yeah, that, that's how you really get into the full sport. I'd like to hear about what you're ironing. Of course, there's there's linen, there's cotton, polyester. Is there a rule about what you're ironing? No, and uh, we we have we have ironed a. a of vague things of things. I, I personally tend to just take a, a nice business shirt that I need to iron anyway for the next day. People have ironed anything from, uh, you know, bedding to, um, you know, towels that you really want to get flat or uh, occasionally, we, you know, the club flag, for example, and anything we have handy um, that needs a good flattening out. What do you find the most satisfying material? Like when I think about like what you know you're done ironing when like you know you're done ironing. It's a feeling. It's an instinct. I'd like to t I'd like to hear about what material you're most drawn to, uh, if any. And when you know like a fine piece of art, you're done with it. Yeah. So the interesting thing about extreme ironing is, as you might expect, since you, you you take the ironing up there and you have to bring it all the way back from wherever you've ended up, if you're down a hole or something, unfortunately, your ironing ends up almost having more creases in it when you get home than when you set out. And so it's almost it's almost smarter to start with something that doesn't eat too much ironing or or can be re you know easily redone at the end. So I don't think you want to take anything too difficult, but you know just some cotton or something or something you've got handy would be uh, just quite convenient. Now, when you talk about, you know, going down the mountain or going back home or to home base, uh, there's also the option to do extreme iron boarding. Well, it turns out, you know, snowboarding, it takes quite a little while to learn and it's pretty hard because obviously you haven't got anything to hold on to. But if, if you open up your ironing board and turn it upside down, suddenly you've got handles as well. So it's like a really good entry into, into snowboarding is to, to try ironing boarding instead. Uh, the, the only issues we have discovered is um, because it's fairly heavy, it will dig into the snow a bit. And so if you're going too fast and hit a bit of a snag, yeah, you have to be prepared to roll down the hill a bit. Have you ever gotten hurt? Not badly. Uh, it's, it's actually quite useful for the... Um, for the following snowball fight, to be honest. So you could have a shield in there. But I think more to the point, the ironing boards have been hurt more than the people. So we have killed about five to six ironing boards in the past. It's, it's very sad. <laughs> it's very sad. Um, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, thank you. When you are going through the experience of extreme ironing, trekking up to wherever you're trekking up to, doing the actual extreme ironing, maybe ironboarding down, What's the soundtrack in your head? Like, where where's your mind? Like, what zone are you in? 
Well, to be honest, the soundtrack I almost always have running through my head, especially as I come from New Zealand, is just the soundtrack from Lord of the Rings. I think they really captured it perfectly. And so anytime you're up on the... And you're probably noticing my my prime spot personally for ironing, for ironboarding is, is is up on a mountain, although there are many other cool places you, you, you can do it as well. But I think I'm really drawn to the mountains, and so I'm really drawn to the landscapes of Lord of the Rings and the music therein as well. I think it was just so perfectly crafted. When I think about extreme ironing, I think, wow, that's something I've never done. And I enjoy ironing, actually. I, when I grew up, my dad would give me a quarter for everything I, I ironed. And I loved the the zone I would get in as I do it, and I just get lost in the ironing and the art of the ironing and the perfect folding and the smell of the iron. Like every sensually, it's a really delightful experience. But I haven't had that experience out of a house. My whole I'm 42 and I've only ever ironed inside. And so when you think about people like me who've never done this, which is most people, how do you feel? Do you feel a sense of like pity or something else? I, I do feel that you've you've missed the opportunity to do your ironing in a more exciting place. I think many of us, unfortunately, if, we, if we're if ironing just before work in the day, it's not terribly interesting in our, in our, in our living room. As much as, as you say, it's nice to get lost in the experience, especially if you've got a big ironing job of many, many shirts or what have you. But I think being able to do that while looking out on some amazing vista is, is just unbeatable. You can go to your, your favorite outdoor place and, um, yeah, originally the saying goes uh, that this sport was invented by Phil Shaw who simultaneously wanted to go climbing and what and knew he had some household chores like I need to do so if you can combine the two there and really get the best of both worlds it's perfect yeah and efficient yeah exactly now speaking of vistas you have a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics um I feel like it's not a leap to picture you doing this sort of extreme ironing in space that would be suitably extreme i agree very very exciting um unfortunately these days you um i'm stopped from being an astronaut by a couch of wearing glasses um and having asthma so all in all i'm afraid i, I can't be an astronaut astronaut until you know um we're sending tourists to space um, as, so it would be an absolute absolute dream and people have done it skydiving before so they're sort of halfway there um but wait a minute are you kidding me no you, if you google online extreme mining there are some pictures of people doing it diving so very much in the sea uh, doing it in the air not yet in space so if we can persuade some astronaut to do it i think we've really won are there other dream locations that you personally fantasize about if i've been out on a walk without my ironing board for the day Sometimes if you find kind of twin pillars of rock that are just the right separation apart, you can imagine ironing on, on top of those with one, one leg on one and one leg on the other, and you've kind of got that perfect um, silhouette amongst the landscape. There's, there's a couple of these pillars on the top of Trefan, which is a, a mountain in Wales in the UK, um, which I just think one day I need to take my ironing board up there and, and um, get that silhouette done. As I psychologically prepare for my next experience with ironing which you know i'm not ready to go outside yet but i'm not against it after our <laughs> conversation i feel kind of excited about it but for those of us who want to up our ironing game what advice or wisdom or perspective can you give us to to just make it better one way or another 
I think just don't be afraid to, even if you're, you know, you're worried, you might look a little bit stupid. Re- realistically, people, that everyone I've ever seen out on the hill with, and I've taken my ironing board out on there, it's, they've just been filled with joy at the kind of ridiculousness of the situation. And I think it's just embracing that. that some of the conversations I've had out there um, have been, you know, some of the best conversations I've had in the hills. It's it's just the sheer ridiculousness that I think really like draws people together, gets people to discuss, and they'll they'll go home and tell all their friends and family about this weird thing they saw here on the hill. And so I, I'd absolutely just say, don't worry about what people are going to think. Just go do it. You you'll get a kick out of it. When I imagine you extreme ironing with a group of friends, maybe they've all been doing it for a while. Y'all know each other. Is it sort of like a car show when you show up and you're like, oh, that's a nice must. Oh, that was a great year. <laughs> like, do you sort of admire each other's equipment? To a certain extent, except I will be honest, um, an ironing, ironing board's very heavy. And so uh, um, uh, among among all of you, um, or heavy and, and awkward, so among the group of you, you'd probably only take one or possibly at most two ironing boards. And so... There's less, if someone finds a new iron online and says, oh, we've got to get this one, absolutely, that we brought it to the group. And so there'll be that that sort of discussion there. Like when we found the iron iron, that was a good day. <laughs> but it, it's it's very much a communal thing. It's very much a thing we do as, as a group of friends. And and even if I've taken some new friends to do it as well. So um, I was the only ironing in the group. But by the end of, end of the day, everyone is doing it and loving it. So uh, yeah, very quick to make new ironing friends, I think. Maybe if extreme ironing has a resurgence and becomes more and more popular, maybe that will be the impetus for ironing board manufacturers to make like lightweight titanium ironing boards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would certainly appreciate that. It would make our lives a bit easier, but you know, also it's, it's quite nice to work, have to, have to work for it a little bit. You know, we, we don't, we don't want to go too easy, too cheap. Um, it's it's nice to feel like you've really done something to get to the difficult position you're in because because they're not only heavy they're also they're also just awkward shapes you know if you're walking through the forest you are forever hitting it you know it, it's this far above your head so yeah you're just you're hitting it on trees and things like that or those people who go caving with them well yes you're getting stuck in all the caves and trying to crawl through holes and so I think we don't want to we don't want to make it too easy but at the same time a little bit lighter would be nice. <laughs> I just imagined you summiting a mountain and releasing the legs you know like pulling the lever and it makes that terrible noise oh it does always can you talk about what that moment is like when you're like unsheathing the board like like any time when you get to this, the, the the summit of any mountain it, it's it's always a good feeling where whether whether it's whether it's a nice weather day and you get an amazing vista or, or a bad weather day and you know you've really battled the elements to get there there's a great satisfaction with getting to the top. And I think especially with an ironing board, you, you put things up, you get set up. It's just very, very satisfying to feel like you've you've achieved something that day. And you'll get some fun pictures out of it as well and get to, get to um, not, not quite show off a bit, but just enjoy the moment um, and then have a great memory to look, look back on uh, for your whole life. When I think about the absurdity of extreme ironing, it brings me joy. I grew up uh, watching Mel Brooks movies, Leslie Nielsen movies, uh, Monty Python. So, like, that's my jam. I'd like to hear any reflections you have at all about how our lives in this era are, in one way, very difficult and very confusing. 
and really intense. I think we can all agree, agree that while every era has its, has its difficulties, this one's a particularly intense, weird one. It does. And, and I think for that reason, there's, um, I really see the value in escapism and just taking a bit of time out of your, your normal life to just, um, you know, have a bit of a reset. Sure. Every, like, literally everyone has a hard week and you get to the end of the week and you just think I need a break from reality for a, for a section. And so, so some people do that by, well, myself included by reading books about books or movie about, about science fiction or fantasy, for example. But this is a nice way of getting out there into the wild yourself and just having a real, a real reset. Cause a day like this, you know, it, it it feels like it's twice as long as a day sitting at home on the sofa or it just gives you a, a proper escape, a real reset for the brain. And um, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't speak highly enough as escapers. Not that we all need to escape our lives, but just have a reset there now and again. That really helps. And have it be absolutely ridiculous. Oh, definitely. Uh, like you, I mean, I, I grew up on Monty Python and things as well. The, the more the more ridiculous, the better. The, life, is, life is too short to be serious all the time. Well, Matt Batley, thank you very much for talking with me. You're welcome. Audacious is always lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks this week to Andy Norton, who connected us with Buzz Holland. And if you like absurd shows like this one, which you clearly do, then subscribe to our podcast feed. There's one episode where the only thing that the four guests have in common is that their name is Pat Smith. You'd probably really love the one we did where we meet scientists who've won Ig Nobel Prizes, including one who discovered why wombats make cubed poop. You can find them on your favorite podcast app or at ctpublic.org audacious. Stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kyone Wolf, or you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.